So there's a province in China that is the home to many ponds that for years were described by the locals as bottomless. They're really deep, so they just, they just called them bottomless ponds. And the locals there would use the ponds for chores, for fishing, for things like that. But in the 1990s, one of the men who lived there decided he wanted to put to test whether these ponds really were bottomless. So with the help of his community, they bought a pump and they drained one of them. And not surprisingly, they found that sure enough, there was a bottom to the pond. What is surprising is what they found at the bottom. They found this large man-made cave that had been dug out by hand. And it was obvious that people had created these. The chisel marks were very clear and distinct and masterful, too. So they went around and they started draining more of them. They found over 20 of these caves. They're now referred to as the Longyu Caves of China. Now these caves, well, they're over 2,000 years old. They go far below the ground, and they're not small. These are big caves. Thousands of square feet have been dug out. In certain areas, the ceiling is almost 100 feet tall. There are pillars carved out of the rock supporting the ceiling. And on the pillars and on the walls, there are these intricate carvings of people and buildings and animals. It's really incredible work. But it's interesting, nobody knows how the work was actually done. Uh, they've never been able to find any tools that were used for this. No one is really sure where the thousands of tons of rock and dirt and sand that were taken out, where all that was dumped. They can't find it. But we still have this incredible work that they did. So much was removed that some people estimate that back in that day, it would have taken at least a thousand people working around the clock to dig out these caves, and so it would have taken them years to do it. What we do know is that they were clearly intelligent, creative, and resourceful craftsmen. But, you know, there's no, there's no written records of the caves or of the people who created them. So we don't know why they dug them out. We don't know how long they used them before they abandoned them. We don't even know who these people actually were. So all we can really do is marvel at their work, and that's exactly what people do. It's a tourist destination. People go, they explore the caves, and marvel at this incredible work these unknown people accomplished. But you know, the greatest work that we can marvel at in this life is creation itself. Uh, this universe, this world, everything that we see in nature, nothing made by man can compare to these things. Nature is so complex, it's so intricate, that it's obvious it couldn't have come about on its own. Now, the same way that we look at the Longyu Caves and we realize that they were obviously and intentionally made by some people or someone, well, in the same way, we see that creation was obviously and intentionally created by someone. And the great thing is that the creative, powerful, intelligent, and wise creator of the universe isn't a mystery. And that's because he's made himself known to us. And because of that, we can do more than just marvel at what he's made. We can marvel at who he is. And that's what I hope we will do 
this morning. We're going to continue our series in the book of Psalms by turning to Psalm chapter 19 this morning. So I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and take out your Bible, turn to Psalm 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use those, you can turn to page 439. Page 439. That'll take you to Psalm 19. My prayer is that we are going to see the importance this morning of praising God for who He is. Psalm 19. As you turn there, I'll let you know this is a psalm that was written by David. We're told it's for the director of music, a psalm of David. Psalm 19, let's begin there together in verse 1. It says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, these no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. I tell you what, let's go ahead and let's, let's pause right there. Keep your place in Psalm 19. I want us to consider this morning who our great God is. And first things first, He is the God of all creation. And all you have to do is step outside to witness His power, right? Yeah. My family, we were on vacation last week and we hiked up part of a mountain in North Carolina. And I stood there, and this is one of the pictures I took while we were on that mountain, I stood there and I, I looked at the, the rolling mountaintops covered in these multicolored leaves as the clouds rested on them, and I said, how can anyone not believe in you, God? If some people choose to believe that all things came from nothing, and I'll be honest with you, I admire their faith in that they have very great faith to believe that. To, to, to think that that could be the case. It's unreasonable faith. It's unreasonable. The idea that nothing could create anything. That it could create such incredible things. Again, we see the long U caves and we know that they were designed by intelligent beings. Rationally, we see creation and we know that it is designed by the most intelligent being. The heavens and the earth, all that they contain, declare, they make known the existence of the Creator, God. They reveal the greatness of God's power. And they don't just declare it, they proclaim it. Every created thing we see shouts to people about the existence of God. Day after day, night after night, they do this. No doubt in his young days as a shepherd, David spent many nights looking up at the starry sky. They say that on a clear and cloudless night, you can see thousands of stars all at once in the night sky. I'm certain David experienced that many times, stood in awe of the sky, seeing the majesty of what God has created. Maybe, maybe some of us haven't seen the stars like David did, what with all the streetlights around our homes and things like that. But today we know more about the stars than David did. 
I was reading this week that NASA estimates that there are up to one septillion stars in the universe. That's a one followed by 24 zeros, by the way, one septillion. In our galaxy, the Milky Way, there are over 100 billion stars. And all of them are made by the hand of the all-powerful God of creation. Now, look, even if we haven't seen thousands of stars in the sky like David likely did, we've certainly seen the same shining sun. Day by day, joyfully, it runs its course. Those who can't see it certainly can feel its warmth. As the psalmist says, nothing is deprived of that. Like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said that God the Father causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, the works of God's hands, all that he's created, declares the goodness and the power and the majesty of God to all people. And the skies were just as telling in David's pasture and in his palace as they are thousands of years later here in Oxford, Florida. All of creation points to God. His creation doesn't need to use words or speech. It doesn't need to whisper to us, hey, there is a God. It doesn't need to do that. Because their very existence shouts this truth to us. And creation, its beauty, its warmth, and its brilliance points us to the Creator who is good, that He would give us all these things, that He would create all these things, to the Creator who is powerful, creating all these things by the words of His mouth, and to the Creator who is near to us. I do not know how anyone could see the great intricacy and care with which God created all things and think that he is unconcerned with us. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says this. It says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And those of us who do know God, we should respond when we see his creation by praising him for his greatness. Sadly, not everyone is going to praise God when they see his creation. We know that that is certainly the case. Romans 1 goes on to tell us that despite the grandeur of creation, many people have rejected God. And it's not just atheists, by the way. They're normally the ones that we would think of as those who have rejected God, and certainly they have. But by recent estimates, there are only about 7% of people worldwide who are atheists. Now, the vast majority of mankind, for the entirety of mankind's existence, has believed that there is something more, that there's something greater, that there's something spiritual. But Romans chapter 1 goes on to tell us that they have chosen to worship created things, rather than worshiping the creator of all things. You see, creation reveals the reality of God's existence so that we would seek him out. And the good news is that he is not far from the one who eagerly seeks him. He's revealed himself, not just in the world he created, but in the word that he gave to us. 
So David goes on. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So who is our great God? Well, again, he's the God of creation, the God of revelation. I'll explain to you what I mean. See, God's created works reveal that he exists. God's given word, the Bible, reveals who he is. In the Bible, God reveals to us a lot about his attributes and his will and his character. All right, so let's consider God's law, just like David did. Many times we think of God's law as a bunch of do's and don'ts. Just uh, things meant to ruin any of our fun. A bunch of red tape and restrictions. But the truth is, that is a very low view of the lofty word of God. Think of it like this. I was talking to my brother this week, my younger brother. Some of you know my younger brother, Nick. He's an accountant. And so Nick regularly deals with people like me who don't know the tax code and don't understand tax laws. Okay, And he told me that sometimes people just don't know what the tax laws are. Sometimes they just don't understand how complicated they are. So he gave me an example. He said the people will come to him at times and they'll say that their car is used for business so they want to write it off on their taxes. He said that's not exactly how it works. It's not that simple. So he said he'll start asking them questions. He'll start with, okay, so what, what percentage of the car usage is, is personal use versus business use? And he says, then we talk about mileage. What's the total mileage versus business mileage? What's a business mile? Well, is travel from my home considered business travel? Well, do you have a home office? He said, on and on the list of questions goes. And he said that just about every time, by the time they get to the, the very end of things, people are surprised how complex it all is. And that's how man-made laws are, aren't they? They're complex. They're complicated. They're hard to understand. They're always changing. But not God's law. Now, His law is perfect. It's very clear about how we're supposed to live. That's, well, that's refreshing when you think about it, isn't it? We don't have to second guess on what's right and wrong and how to live in a way that pleases the Lord. Well, he's made that perfectly clear. And his laws are trustworthy. Because unlike the laws of men, God's laws do not change. They're rooted in his righteous character, and so we know that they are always right. They endure forever. Now, I understand. Some people say, but Andrew, God's laws are complicated. No, 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 no. When mankind tries to take over and think that they can improve God's laws, that's when things get 
complicated. That's what many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day had done, if you remember. Well, they came along and they added to God's laws, though God's word was lacking or something like that. And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they added their own rules and regulations and stipulations on top of what God had said. This is what Jesus said about them in Matthew 23. He said, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. That's what man does when we get involved in trying to improve things. The reason that the law of Scripture is perfect is because it comes from the God of Scripture, and He is perfect. And the law that He has given, it comes from His perfect character. All right, so why does God command us to be patient and to bear with one another in Ephesians chapter 4? Well, because he's patient with us. Why does God command us to love even those who hate us and persecute us in Matthew chapter 5? Well, doesn't God love those in this world who hate and mock his name? Why does God command us not to lie? Well, because only truth comes out of his mouth. You see what I'm getting at? It goes back to that question that some people have have asked in order to actually attack Christianity and the moral commands of God, they'll say, well, is something good just because God commands it? Or does God command something because it's already good? So something good because God commands it. Or does God command something because it's already good? The answer is that neither of those things are true. God commands because He is good. It is out of the overflow of God's goodness that he gives these commands. What that means is, when we read the commands of God, we're not just seeing how we are supposed to live, but we are also seeing the perfect, pure, and holy character of God. Church, that should start to change our mindset and our attitude when we approach God's word and when we look at his law. We shouldn't see his commands as burdens to be woefully carried out, but as life-giving directions to be joyfully followed. They're not a bunch of red tape. No, they're, they're more precious than gold. They're not a bitter pill to swallow. No, no, no. They're, they're sweeter than honey. And in them, there is great reward. God knows what's for our good, and his commands come from his perfect goodness. So when we open God's word, when we read his commands, that should lead us to worship him for who he is. Because in them we learn about his perfect character. Every command should lead us to praise God for who he is. But the truth is, that God's law doesn't just show his greatness. It shows our lowliness, doesn't it? It shows just how far we have fallen from his standard of righteousness. The truth is, if, if being good in God's sight really was the standard for entrance to heaven, then woe to all of us. But there's more to who God is. Look at verse 12. 
David wrote. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So, so, so creation points us to the existence of God. And as we seek Him, we come to His Word, and as we read His Word, we come to His wonderful law. But as we read God's law, we start to realize all these laws that we've broken. All these commands that we just we haven't measured up to. And then we start to realize that God, the great lawgiver, if He really is just, if He really is holy, then He has to punish sin. But then as we continue in God's Word, that's when we find what David did. Which is that God is not only the God of creation, the God of law, the God of revelation, we find that He is also the God of our salvation. That He is our Redeemer. That He is the only one who can deliver and set us free from sin and from its penalty. Back in December of 2012, just a week before Christmas, a young man named Hayden was pulled over by the police as he was driving along because the registration on his license plate had expired. And he admitted to the officer that he knew that that was the case. He knew that they needed to be renewed, but that money was so tight in that time for him that he had to make the decision between feeding his family or renewing his tags. So, of course, he fed his family told all this to the officer, and the officer went back to his squad car. And I can only imagine, as Hayden was sitting there, that he was thinking to himself that, you know, if the officer came back and handed him a ticket, that now he didn't just have to deal with renewing these tags. Now he was going to have to pay a fine on top of that, too. And sure enough, the officer came back, he handed him a ticket, and he walked away. And Hayden was just crushed. There was no way that he could pay this. As he unfolded and opened up the ticket, a $100 bill fell out of it. It's enough to take care of the tags, enough to pay the fine. You see, the law was, was broken, and he knew that. And, and justice required a penalty, but someone else paid it for Hayden. And Christians, let's never forget that as sinners, we broke God's laws and His commands. And the just penalty for our sin is eternal death. It's separation forever from God after this life in a place called hell. And for God to be just and to be holy, the penalty for sin can't be ignored. And the problem for us is that there is no way that we can pay the fine in this life. So Jesus paid it for us. He paid the price and the penalty for our sin by His shed blood on the cross. And when in our lives we had that moment where we went to Him in repentant faith, we were set free from bondage to sin. We were freed from the penalty of hell. We were reconciled to God. We're forever forgiven. He is the God 
of our salvation. And here's the great thing. As our Redeemer, not only did He set us free, but now in our lives He he delivers us. You see, David didn't just go to God for the forgiveness of sin, but for deliverance from sin. David said, keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Believer, not only does God forgive us, but he will deliver us from the very evil that is always trying to reassert its rule in our lives. Sin does not need to rule over us, Christians. We have been redeemed. We've been set free from sin. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we're no longer slaves to sin, so we shouldn't live that way. And by God's strength, we don't have to. Our rock and our redeemer forgives and delivers us. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says this. It says that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So like David, not only ought we go to God for forgiveness when we fall, which we will, Not only should we go to him for forgiveness, but we should go to him for help in our battles against sin so we wouldn't so easily fall again. So that we can live lives innocent of great transgression. Who who is this great God of ours who forgives the error of our ways? Who adopts us into his family? Who allows us at all times to come into his presence for forgiveness and grace and mercy in our time of need? He's the God of our salvation. And church, he is worthy to be praised. Church, when David stepped outside, whether it was day or night, he realized that he was looking at the things that God had powerfully created. When David opened up Scripture, he saw the beauty of God's law, and he recognized the greatness of the one who gave it. And when sin tried to grab hold of David, he remembered, he remembered God who is his deliverer and redeemer. And as a result of these things, David praised God. C.S. Lewis, that great Christian author of years past, once said that he took Psalm 19 to be the greatest poem in the Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Maybe you're like me, you think to yourself, yeah, but I could never write like David did. And that's okay, because believers, we can praise God like David did. And that is what we should do. Every time that we step outside, every time that we open God's Word, every time that we go to God in prayer for forgiveness or strength, we need to praise Him. And not just for the things that he does. What I want us to realize this morning, the truth today, church, is that we as Christians, we need to be in the practice of constantly praising God for who he is. We need to be in the practice of constantly praising him for who he is. For his great character and attributes, his will, his goodness, and his grace. Believers, it's by the power of God's command that we even exist at all. It's by His goodness, grace, and mercy that we stand here forgiven today. 
So he is worthy to be feared and honored and worshipped. David saw God's greatness constantly. And I pray that we would too. I pray that as we do, praise and worship would be the natural overflow of our hearts to God, Christians. So this week, here is my challenge to you, church, to all of us. It's that when we go to God in our prayers, whether we're asking Him for help, for forgiveness, for wisdom, for strength, whatever it might be, that when we go to Him in prayer, we would make sure to intentionally spend time praising God for who He is. So so go to God in prayer and ask Him for wisdom, and then praise Him for His generosity and giving it to His people. Go to God in prayer and ask Him for forgiveness, and then praise Him for being merciful. Go to God in prayer and ask Him for strength in your situation, and then praise Him for His power. Church, let's praise God for who He is, because He is worthy of all of our praise. In just a moment, we're going to sing a closing song, and my encouragement to all of us churches, that that is exactly how we would respond, praising God for who He is. And maybe you want to do it by singing that song at the top of your lungs, or maybe you want to do it by going to God in prayer and thanking and praising Him. You can do that where you're sitting or standing in the end, or you can come to the altar, pour out your heart to God and thank Him. I'm sure if you do, other believers will surround you and pray as well. But maybe you're here, and Jesus Christ is not your Savior. You've, you've never gone to Him for forgiveness. You never receive from Him that salvation that He offers. And if that's true for you, friend, I want you to understand that you can join with David in seeing God as your Creator, because sure enough, God created you. You can call God the God of Revelation, because He's revealed Himself to you. But you cannot join with David in saying that God is the God of your salvation. Okay, God wants you to receive the salvation that He's offering. But if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, then you haven't received it yet. And before you leave, I just need you to understand that all the other things you can rely on in this life that many people try to rely on to be right in God's sight, going to church and getting baptized and taking communion and doing good works and being generous and kind to others, being successful in life, all these things that people think will make them right. Friend, if that is what you are relying on, then after this life, when you stand before God, please understand that you will be found in your sin, and headed for the penalty of it. But you do not need to leave here that way. Understand that God wants to save you from the penalty of sin. He wants to save you from hell. He wants to bring you into his family. He wants to forgive you. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. He died to take the penalty and punishment for us. And listen, you need to understand, we don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a living Savior. And Jesus powerfully rose from the dead and He stands in heaven right now waiting to forgive you of all your sin, to save you from the penalty of hell, and to give you eternal life. The guarantee that when this life is over, you'll be welcomed into heaven with open arms. Not because of any good thing that you have done, but because of what Jesus did for us. And if you've never made that decision, we want to give you the chance to do that before you leave so that you can leave this place saying with David and with so many of us in this room that God is the God of your salvation. Let's pray together. Friend, maybe that's where you're at this morning. You, you, you know that you're a sinner, that you've broken God's laws. I don't think any of us here thinks we are a perfect person. And friend, if, if you know that you've sinned 
and you're willing to admit that you've, you've never gone to Jesus for forgiveness, you've never put your faith in Him, you've never repented of your sin, but you're ready to change that, please understand that no matter what you have done or where you have been or what you're going through right now, Jesus has waited your whole life to save you from your sin and to save you from hell and bring you into His family. And if you're ready to give your life to Him, you can come and talk to me during this final song. Bring your questions. We can pray together. But if you're ready to give your life to Jesus right now, you can follow me in a simple prayer like this. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've broken your commands. But Jesus, I know that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you didn't stay in the grave, but that you rose from the dead. Jesus, today I'm asking you to forgive me of all my sins. I'm asking you to be my Savior. Jesus, today I'm giving my life to you. I'm ready to live it your way. I want you to take it because I know you can do more with it than I can. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who made that decision, who can leave here rejoicing and saying that you are the God of their salvation, I pray they would share that with someone so that we could be a church that rejoices over salvation. Father, you say in your word that the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. We want to do that as a church. I pray that if there's anyone here still not sure where they stand with you, they have questions, they're on the fence, they don't know what to do. I pray that they would talk to somebody before they leave. Then, Father, for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, who can say that Jesus is our rock and our redeemer, I pray that you would help us be the most thankful people in the world. Not just on Sundays or Wednesday evenings at church, not just at Thanksgiving time, but every day. Every day when we step outside and see the great things that you have made, every day when we open your word, every day when we come to you in prayer for forgiveness and strength, I pray that we would be so impressed by your greatness and goodness and holiness that we would not be able to help but to praise you for who you are. And I pray that as we prepare to leave this place, as we sing one final song, that you be honored and glorified by everything that we sing, everything that we say, because you are worthy of all of our praise. Help us not to forget that. Lord, we love you. But we know and you proved long ago that you love us more. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.